Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Kiara Bridges. She's a professor of anthropology at Boston University. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, my name is Kiara Bridges. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I am a professor of law and also a professor of anthropology at Boston University. Um, I uh, work with uh women of color predominantly um, as they navigate healthcare systems to have healthy pregnancies, uh, births, and infants. Thank you for that introduction. So Dr. Bridges, as uh, both a lawyer and an anthropologist, can you tell me a little bit more about what the type of work you're doing um, with these women of color consists of? Sure. Um, so I, um, my first book is called Reproducing Race, an Ethnography of Pregnancy as a Site of Racialization. Um, and in that book, I conducted 18 months of ethnographic fieldwork research in um, an obstetrics clinic of a public hospital in New York. Um, and what I was uh, doing in the hospital, so I've always been motivated around questions of race. Um, and in that hospital, I was really interested in what had become a truism in the social sciences um, at that time, at the time when I was conducting my research, which is like race is a social construction. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in investigating how race was socially constructed, um, by what processes, and of course, to what effects. And I wanted to ans- ask that question while um, working with uh, people experiencing um, the event of pregnancy. Um, so what I did, I just I went, I was interested in how women. Um, navigated these healthcare systems, how they navigated Medicaid, how they navigated um, the public health bureaucracy in New York, um, and how their race um, impacted their experiences, and how their race actually impacted the the systems that we have erected um, to care for vulnerable people in the country. Gotcha. And so, as you mentioned, being a woman of color and also having to use sort of public insurance, mm-hmm. those two factors kind of have an impact in the ways in which these women navigate the healthcare system, especially in a vulnerable um, state and time like pregnancy. Um, and I'm wondering how do the structures that have been erected through the law um, end up impacting their seeking care during pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Well, so what I what I have been sort of obsessed with um, since starting the research um, is how the state has taken pregnancy as an opportunity to um, <sighs> surveil is a strong word, but that's really what it is. It's it's an monitor. opportunity, yeah, monitor to observe, to regulate, and to punish. Um, I poor women. Um, who are seeking assistance with uh, prenatal care, they have a hard time maintaining any semblance of privacy um, around their and, and around all aspects of their life. So it's not just this question about privacy around your physical condition, right, because you're pregnant, but rather like privacy around your relationships, privacy around your um, economic uh, stability and where you get your money, but privacy around um, just information around about your life and also the decisions that you make in your life. Um, so I've been really interested in how um, this this opportunity, right, this this social welfare state, which is providing a 
good that we ought to celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. Healthcare, um, how that becomes perverted um, and becomes uh, an, ex- an experience or an opportunity for incredible disempowerment, um, stigmatization, and dehumanization. Mm. So you mentioned privacy. Uh, I'm sorry, privacy issues for these women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember you also mentioned earlier, you know, quote unquote, Medicaid and other forms of government government assistance are meant to be um, service sort of goods that are mm-hmm. for the greater public good, mm-hmm. but they end up being weaponized right. um, against these women. So, in which ways does it manifest in their day to day? as women seeking care. Right. So I find that, I mean, there are so many stories that I could tell from my first book about how women are seeking care, you know, and um, it, the this endeavor becomes a tool that uh, ends up, you know, subordinating them. For example, there's this one woman who um, had uh, mental health issues in the past, mm-hmm. Um and she felt that, you know, when asked that question by her healthcare provider, you know, have you had a history of mental illness? Um, she wanted to answer truthfully because, uh, you know, she didn't have an incentive to lie. However, she was also very, um, she didn't want to be medicalized, I'm sorry, to to take medication um, if she didn't have to, um, especially during pregnancy. Um and that telling her provider um, her past uh, just opened her up for it. So the provider insisted upon medication during pregnancy. If she refused to take the medication, um, the provider was threatening her with going to Child Protective Services and having a case opened up, being investigated, um, using her relationship with her partner at the time. He was asking the partner to force her to take the medicine. And it was, you know, it was, um, it was just not good care. <laughs> and, right. it's, and so what I what I was interested in, though, is how the state, right, the state is involved um, in as much as the state is is going to be the, the entity that is punishing this woman for wanting to make an autonom- autonomous decision around the kind of medications that she takes during her pregnancy. So this, you know, um, the Child Protective Services bureaucracy, Child Welfare Services, um, foster care, incredibly disproportionate uh, representation of people of color, um, even more disproportionate representation of poor people. I mean, that's really a system for poor people. Um, wealthier people get to handle their family issues um, in different arenas. Child Welfare Services, foster care. That's the system that we have erected to deal with um, poor people's issues. And so what I was interested in how this healthcare setting um, ends up having a very close relationship um, with this child welfare bureaucracy, right, and how poverty, um, you know, these systems that we have erected to address or provide services to the poor um, end up bleeding so seamlessly into these obviously more punitive institutions like, you know, um, foster care and child welfare um, services, also like just the criminal justice system, jails and prisons and um, and so on and so forth. Right. So as a budding healthcare provider, I have to ask, you know, we're taught in medical school to take a history 
um, when we see any any given patient mm -hmm. take a comprehensive medical history, be it sort of contributory to the care that the patient is getting. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you've seen differences in following these patients in terms of whether there are structures in place that add sort of um, additional forces to the way in which their histories have to be disclosed because they're recipients of Medicare or Medicaid or... Right. So what you're learning as a matter of good, you know, healthcare, it's just good practice, best practices is to take a medical history. Um, that's being mandated by law for the poor. Um, as a as a Medicaid provider or as a provider that is being reimbursed essentially by Medicaid, um, Healthcare providers have to ask these questions, um, so the law is is requiring them to provide a set, you know, um, a particular type of care. Um, poor women don't have an option of not answering those questions, right? So if there is a woman who has had a history of intimate violence and she has freed herself from that relationship, she doesn't feel particularly impacted by that relationship, um, she might not want to talk about her history with intimate violence. If she opts out of, or she, there is no opportunity for her to opt out of that question, um, red flags are raised for the social worker who's asking those questions as a you know legal mandate. Mm -hmm. um, and this opens her up to being investigated by Child Protective Services from having, you know, neglect and abuse charges, you know, at least, you know, questioned whether those are appropriate um, because social workers feel like there's, there's something to hide and they're not being fully open mm. um, about their history. So this thing that might be best practices for everyone, as you mentioned, I love the word, is weaponized um, against the poor. Poor The poor don't have spaces um, within their encounters with the um, healthcare bureaucracy mm -hmm. to uh, create the type of care that they would like to receive. So the medical field, in a way, has a fraught relationship with poor or poor communities, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and even more in particular, poor communities of color because of a long history of sort of unidirectional, um, a bit abusive mm -hmm. um, relationship, if I may use that term. And I'm wondering whether in your conversation with these women, concerns are ever raised about you know what their fears are or what their concerns are mm -hmm. when they're going to mm -hmm. interface with healthcare. Yeah, you know, I actually didn't encounter um, any skepticism mm -hmm. from uh, from the poor women I worked with about the quality of the care or the quality of the interactions that they were going to have with um, healthcare providers. Um, so the hospital where I worked for my first book. Um, Women patients chose that hospital for their prenatal care uh, because of the reputation that it had as providing the best care. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, so I never encountered, or I don't remember encountering a, a patient who was um, hesitant really um, about medicine or, or, afraid that the type of care um, that she was going to get uh, was not going to be optimal because of her race or her class. 
But I will say um, that the thing that what what disturbed me a lot about the space um, was something that was obvious to me or appeared obvious to me was that the healthcare providers were using these poor, predominantly women of color as bodies to learn on. Um, it was, it was, and they were aware of it, right? They were very much aware that, um, that although care might have been being provided, um, most important about the interaction was that the patient was someone or, or a subject upon which knowledge can be gleaned and skills can be practiced. Mm. Um, also, when I was, when I was there, um, I talked to a number of residents who were very aware that the kind of I wouldn't say the the quality of the care, but rather the professionalism of the interaction changed when they were dealing with a poor patient. Um, so and so this the residency was a dual one um, in which you know half of the time was in a private hospital and the other half was in a public hospital, and the private patients were their attendings private patients. And so the residents um, had, you know, fewer opportunities to interact with the patients, um, with the private patients. But the public patients, you know, those were theirs. Um, And they were very happy to have the opportunity to learn on these poor women because they weren't going, they weren't learning on the more affluent women in the private hospital. Um, But also they knew that the, the level of oversight or the level of professionalism really that they had to display during those interactions, um, that, you know, it just didn't compare to the level of professionalism that they had to display um, with their private um, patients. So I remember one resident telling me that sometimes he would take phone calls in the middle of an exam. Um, he was like, you know, I wouldn't do it for a private patient, but I would do it, you know, over here. Um, and he was like, sometimes those important those phone calls are really important and I need to take it. But so like there was an awareness about the latitude, yeah. yeah, the latitude that he had with the poor. And that was disturbing to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me ask you, the many ways, and this is shifting gears a little bit, the ways in which, um, you know, Medicare, CPS, and all those mm-hmm. other government tools have been transformed, perhaps unintentionally, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, to monitor or surveil the poor, especially poor women of color, uh, it seems to be somewhat connected with the ways in which um, poor, you know, women women of color are portrayed um, as a problem. Mm-hmm. If poor women of color are portrayed as a problem, if they're fertile, if mm-hmm. they're quote unquote too fertile. And I'm, I was wondering whether you could say something um, about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 feel very strongly that our systems um, that are supposed to be providing these goods that all governments should provide, especially the governments um, in the, of the wealthiest nations in the world, um, our systems are being perverted by racism and classism. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel in my second book, which is called The Poverty of Privacy Rights, explores... Um, the moral construction of poverty, which is we understand 
poverty to be a result of individual failings as a society, Mm -hmm. as opposed to structural issues, right? So if people are poor, instead of saying, oh, they're poor because the economy um, doesn't contain a middle wage, middle skilled job that could support a family, or because our educational systems, we, we keep funding those through property taxes, meaning that poor communities don't have money to fund their schools adequately. You know, that's why people, we don't, you know, as a general matter, um, we as a society don't embrace those structural explanations of poverty. Instead, we as a society, and poll after poll shows this to be true, we as a society explain poverty in terms of individual shortcomings. So people are poor because they're lazy, or people are poor because they are um, promiscuous and they have these babies, or people are poor because they feel entitled to handouts, right? Um, and so because we think that is why people are poor, the institutions that we create for people are so punitive and they end up getting perverted, right? Whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, um, the the best of intentions um, gets perverted by the stories that we tell about the people who are going to be relying on the institutions. And so that's why we see uh, Medicaid uh, you know, being so punitive. That's why we see the child welfare services seemingly to be more interested in you know, dissolving families than in actually, you know, protecting and supporting families. Um, And then you add, you know, in the U.S., it's impossible to really separate race and class. Um, Our our, our systems f- that we have created for dealing with poverty are very much informed by our horrendous um, racial history and racial present. Um, we, study after study, you know, study after study has shown us to be true that we as a country um, tend to think that the poor are people of color, even though as a as a fact matter of like raw numbers, there are many more poor white people in this country than there are poor people of color. Um, we tend to just imagine poor people as people of color, um, and that has made us less. Uh, kind in our approaches to dealing with poverty. That's why we're so comfortable with the rampant poverty that we have in this country, despite our country being one of the wealthiest in the world. So, um, yeah, so race and class has made a mess of of the systems um, that we have. Um, And we won't get better systems until we really deal with our racism and classism as a a nation. Mm. I'm glad you bring up race and class, mm-hmm. right? Um, so wealthier women of color also face some, although not necessarily as obvious, mm-hmm. but some shortcomings or some hurdles or struggles when they're going through pregnancy and after. Uh, and, you know, you've heard in the media recently, Serena Williams and Beyonce and that you name them have been mm-hmm. more and more increasing awareness to issues of um childbirth as a, when you are a woman of color. And I was wondering, you could speak on those issues of disparities. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, racial disparities in maternal mortality um, has been getting uh, 
they have been giving getting more attention of recent and in, in light of very famous women of color uh, recounting their experiences, harrowing experiences with pregnancy um, and childbirth. Um, so just number wise, you know, three to four times as many black women are dying along the path to motherhood, um, either during pregnancy or childbirth or shortly thereafter. Um, yeah, three to four times as many black women are dying um, during that period uh, as compared to white women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people hear that statistic, um, and also I should note that statistic has been true throughout the history of the country. This isn't a new statistic, right? So even though maternal mortality uh, rates are decreasing up until this past year where they increased dramatically, but over time there's been a steady decline in uh, maternal mortality rates. The, the gap has not narrowed. Um, so this is this is not a new problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that there, I, I applaud, I'm really happy that attention has been turned to the problem, um, but recently, but it's not a new problem. So that being said, um, people hear that statistic and they think to themselves, oh, this is a problem of poverty. It's because people of color are disproportionately poor. And so therefore, women of color are going to be disproportionately affected by poverty. And so therefore, they're going to die more frequently um, during pregnancy and uh, childbirth. But that's not entirely true. You know, definitely women of color who are poor are dying, you know, um, more frequently than their, their, their white counterparts. But wealthier women of color are dying as well. Um, they're dying more frequently than their white counterparts. And so their class privilege isn't exactly um, uh, sort of negating the effects of their lack of race privilege, right? The fact that they are people of color still matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's killing them. It's killing them even though they have access to um, all of this class privilege, you know, the private insurance and the doctor who actually is your doctor and not just the clinic's doctor, right? So um, that class privilege isn't exactly saving their lives. It's not bringing them, at least there's not bringing parity between them and, and um, affluent white women. All that to say, race matters, right? And um, we really have to take seriously um, racism in this country. And I'm not talking about a bigot, you know, I'm not talking about a healthcare provider who's really secretly in the Klan. Like, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not I'm not interested in that. You know, I don't want those people to have jobs. But I'm really talking about, like, how racism is so ubiquitous um, that even affluent women of color are affected by it, right? They're embodying um, this health-denying fact of American life, and it's playing out during their pregnancies. It's playing playing out during their childbirths. It's playing out as they get older and, you know, they develop breast cancer at rates that are much higher than their white counterparts. It's playing out when that breast cancer tends to be more deadly, you know, it's deadlier than their the breast cancer that their white counterparts have. And so, you know, we have to take seriously um, racial disenfranchisement that we have not overcome, <laughs> that it, it persists into in 2018, 50 years after we overcame in the 60s. Um so, yeah. And what about their children? Mm-hmm. So thinking about um, infant mortality mm-hmm. and its association with, you know, um, mortality and after or during pre- childbirth. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, racial disparities in infant mortality um, are also outrageous. <laughs> um, twice as many black babies as white babies die every year. Um, again, even though the rate, infant mortality rates have declined over the years, that gap has persisted. It's not a new problem. We know it. Um, you know, we as a society are not committed to um, addressing that, the, that like, you know, embarrassing fact of American life. Um, and again, this is not a problem of class, um, although, you know, it's lamentable and true that poor people have higher infant mortality rates than their affluent counterparts. Affluent women of color give birth to infants um, that die at rates that are much higher than their white counterparts and the infants of their white counterparts, right? So that racial disparity, is it persists across income levels. And in fact, it actually increases as you get up the you know, socioeconomic ladder. So the rates by which poor black babies and poor white babies die are actually closer than the rates at which wealthier black babies and wealthier white babies die. Mm-hmm. It actually increases as you move up the income ladder. And that is a tragedy. Um, and it underscores, like, bolded, outline, italicized, like, all sorts of highlights on there that race still matters. Like, right. we, the, you know, there it was a lie when people said we were post-racial when Obama got elected. Um, we are not beyond race. Race is continuing to impact all aspects of our society. Um, I have two more questions. Um, so the first question is, kind of going back to maternal mortality. So when we, the, the way we define maternal mortality in the, uni- in the United States is beyond just uh, death within a few days or during childbirth. Mm-hmm. Right? It goes beyond like months ahead. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, say, Erica Gartner, mm-hmm. who uh, died of cardiac complications five years after giving birth, mm-hmm. but we know she had like uh, dilated cardiomyopathy um, before she got pregnant, but also faced all types of issues with race with Eric Garner's death at the hands of the police in New York City. Um, I'm wondering whether in seeing these women in the public hospital in New York City, um, you also followed up with them like after they had given birth and kind of, you know, what shape or form did the care and follow-up care look like after giving birth? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was I was lucky in as much as I got to stay in contact with some of the women I met. Um, not many, um, but some. And they seem to be doing well. Um, one thing, though, that I want to highlight about the care and, and women's experiences, you know, well after um, they give birth is that... Um, So the Medicaid program in New York State is actually very generous in Mm -hmm. as much as it allows for um, undocumented uh, people to receive care. Um, But their care ends eight weeks after they give birth. Mm. Um, So thank you for the generosity in New York, right? Like, I mean, we should applaud that because most states don't allow for um, their Medicaid programs to cover undocumented folks. Um, so it's great that me- that New York State is generous in that capacity, but then it just drops women off, right, um, eight weeks after the birth of their babies. And so any sort of, of health condition that might have been, they might have developed or might have been exacerbated um, during their pregnancies, yeah, they have... Birth. And birth, they have no means, they have no health care um, to to deal with it, right? Yeah, it's not, that kind of just makes me curious 
you know, in all the studies that are looking just at maternal mortality, I wonder if anyone, and this is not necessarily a question, but I'm just thinking and wondering, is anyone kind of doing it like a time chart mm-hmm. of looking at where, you know, where is there like a hot point in the course where these poor women are more likely to die? Is it like during birth mm-hmm. from bleeding or is it like five months later, like Erica Gardner from like a cardiac matter or from... Is it two months after, you know, from like a pulmonary embolism? I don't know, but I'm, it just kind of got me thinking. The other question I wanted to ask you um, was about this whole class thing, right? So as, for example, uh, you look at rates of, say, infant mortality across income levels, the gap actually widens looking at disparities between, say, um, black and white women. And, as, you know, some theories may potentially think about, say, and when we're thinking about the impact of racism, is that as as individuals kind of climb that economical ladder, um, they face more, quote-unquote, interpersonal racism mm-hmm. uh, compared to, say, being, at a, being of lower income or lower social economic class and having a more sort of homogeneous network um, versus being a wealthier say, a black woman working in corporate America dealing with racism day in, day out at work um, versus, you know, being poor and it's more the structural barriers and whatnot. I'm wondering what your thoughts are yeah, on... No, no. So there are there are studies out there that support that, right? That um, there's actually one study that I'm thinking of in which uh, it documented that women of color who live in... Um, predominantly white neighborhoods, um, they have much poorer outcomes than, so affluent women of color who live in predominantly white neighborhoods have much poorer health outcomes than affluent women of color who live in racially segregated neighborhoods. Um, and the idea there is that it's stressful. <laughs> it is stressful to be, you know, one of only a couple of people of color in your neighborhood. It's stressful to be the only black you know, mom um, in the yoga class. It's stressful um, to be to be the, a racial minority, but not just a racial minority, but a racial minority in a country where that's still ex- incredibly racist. Um, and so we might have, there might be some protective elements involved in racial segregation. Um, and it might be health protective aspects of being around, you know, other people of color. And of course, that's not the answer, right? That's I don't think that's what King was fighting for. Um, I think that King was actually fighting for um, a country and King and all of the other people who sacrificed their lives um, for racial justice in the 1960s. Um, King was actually fighting for a world in which like racial disparities in health just wasn't a thing, right? And he was actually fighting for a world um, in which um, you didn't have to uh, seek uh, solace from people in your racial in outgroup, right? Like he was fighting for a world in which um, it just doesn't resemble the one that we that we live Absolutely, in now. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So query how much transformation has happened. <laughs> um, and so your next project is looking at. Yeah, I'm looking. So my first project, I worked with um, poor women of color um, 
navigating Medicaid. Um, my second book, though, is a, it's called The Poverty of Privacy Rights, and it's a very legal argument about privacy rights in, you know, 2018. Um, but the next ethnography that I would like to write um, will be an investigation of class-privileged women of color navigating healthcare systems to um, get prenatal care, give birth to these kids. Um, because one thing that I noticed often when people would read my first book, Reproducing Race, they'd be like, oh my God, yeah, that is terrible what you're describing. But I think it's class. I think what you're talking about, you know, the dehumanization and the, you know, autonomy denying aspects, you know, that is just really a function of class. It's not so much race. Um, those things operate together. And so, so right, exactly. So I'm like, okay, let me write another book to show <laughs> that it's not just class, it's also race. Race has informed um, everything about our, you know, experiences with class. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, Me too. Next <laughs> me uh, too. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was a pleasure chatting with you, mm-hmm. and I hope to have you back on your next project as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.